That's one thing that I love about real estate. It's a great vehicle. It can take you to wonderful places, but it can also take you to horrible places. And so it's important to, to go into real estate with a goal as to what you want real estate to do for you, and then it can help get you there. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Shiloh Lundahl. Today, we're digging into his switch, his transition from flipping to lease option investing. We dig into why he made the switch, the significant tax advantages that he received by switching to lease options rather than flipping. You might not know that flipping is pretty heavily tax disadvantaged as far as real estate investing strategies go, and quite a lot more. We talk about some successful deals that he's done. We talk about some deal that didn't go particularly well and dig into why. I also ask a a question that I've had for lease option folks that is kind of a tough question, and he gives a great answer. So there's so much in here, you're going to learn a lot. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Shiloh Lundahl. Let's get right into it. Shiloh, thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you, your background, and your business, can you tell us about what you do, how you invest in real estate. Absolutely. And I appreciate you allowing me to come on to your podcast and share some of my experience with your listeners. So my name is Shiloh Lundahl. I am actually a child and family therapist based out of Arizona, and I've been investing in real estate for the last, I'd say about 13 years. And the way that I got started is I was reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like a lot of people do, and I read the idea of, you know, buying an asset. And so I bought a a property that was in my neighborhood. And this was back in 2010 in Arizona when the prices were really, really, you know, low back then. And so we ended up getting like a five bedroom, three bathroom home just off of, what was it? A a beautiful golf course. And you got it for like $93,000. And we knew a family that would want to come in and live there. So they came in, they lived there. They rented it from us for like five years. And we ended up selling it to them. We made about $50,000 on the game. If we had held on to that, that property would probably be worth like 450000 now. We bought it for ninety three, And real estate have just gone way up since we started investing. And But we did sell that and we put that towards some education. And then in 2014, I purchased the building that I have my therapy practice in. And then I connected with a buddy of mine and I told him that I wanted to do some deals with him. And so he and I started to flip a little bit, 15 and I flipped three properties and, you know, I made some money on one, lost some money and made a little bit of money. And between the three of them, I only made about $17,000 my first year, but it really got me in the game and it helped me realize this idea of making money in, in real estate. And so the next year we flipped, you know, six properties and, and, and bought a few to, to hold. And we made about 90, I made about 95,000 on my end and he made the same on his end. And then we went to a lease option training and we learned about lease options because we didn't keep a lot of rentals until we went to the lease auction training because we didn't like to be landlords. But when you do a lease with the option to buy, a lot of times having one of those properties 
and like a quarter of the work that it takes to manage a regular rental. And so that, and you also get more rent and, and you also, you know, are able to sell the property to the tenant and buyer and not have to pay a lot of the closing costs or the realtor fees. So it's basically doing like a slow flip, like a three or four year flip, but you make two to three times the amount that you would on a normal flip. And you also have better tax advantages with it. So that really kind of switched me from this idea of flipping to this idea of, hey, let's do these buy and hold properties and sell them on leased options. So then over the next couple of years, we just kept collecting properties and collecting properties. And then we started by some mobile home parks. And so we have six small mobile home parks. And then we built our portfolio up to about 250 properties. And then just within the last uh, few months, we actually started to divide our company. And my business partner is taking the North Carolina properties and then I'm sticking with the Arizona properties. And then we're keeping in common the mobile home parks. So currently I have about a hundred units in mobile home parks. And then I have about 80 units in single family in the commercial building that I have. Very cool. Are you uh, still in the child and family therapy business or industry, or did you kind of get out of that and go full-time real estate? No. So I, I'm still a child family therapist and I meet with probably 15 to 18 clients a week. And my office is actually less than a mile from my house. And so it's really easy just to go over there and meet with clients. And then I come home and I do a lot of my real estate stuff in the morning before I, I go to my office and work for about four hours a, a day as a therapist. And so I enjoy that. I enjoy providing counseling to families and I, I do a pretty good job. I've worked with a lot of families that have really improved their relationships with one another. A lot of parents have been very grateful that I've worked with their family. And so it's been a really good experience doing that. But then, you know, that that's my own private business, but I knew that I wasn't going to get very wealthy doing that. And I wanted to be able to take my kids on some vacations and to go and see different parts of the world. Uh, actually, within the next couple of weeks, we're going to be going to Fiji and we're going to do a kind of a humanitarian aid kind of trip where we go out there and we assist with some things. And I'm really excited about that. I've never been there. But I'm excited to go out and do that. My daughter, who is uh, going to be 18 here in a couple of months, she's actually going to Jerusalem in about a week, and she's going to go and do some humanitarian aid there and stuff. And so it's going to really need to be able to have real estate help us meet some of our, our personal goals and dreams. And so that's one thing that I love about real estate. It's a great vehicle. It can take you to wonderful places, but it can also take you to horrible places. And so it's important to, to go into real estate with a goal as to what you want real estate to do for you. And then it can help, it can help get you there. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned tax advantages related to changing up your strategy, getting out of flipping, getting into uh, the lease option strategy. I think that's a big aspect of flipping and uh, that people don't really no, when they first get into it, they just see, hey, flipping, I see these HGTV shows, they're making all this money, maybe I can do well too. Then on the back end, they find out the tax bills are kind of enormous in flipping compared to other types of real estate investing. Can you uh, dig into that a bit for us and, and tell us about how the tax situation changed for you when you changed up your strategy? Sure. So, you know, when you flip a property, it's looked at as a short-term capital gain if you do it within, you know, less than a year period of time. And so you have to pay the short-term capital gains tax. And, and that tends to be a higher tax rate than if you had kept that, that investment for over a year. And so when you do the lease with the option to buy strategy, you usually keep the property for over a year. And so you get the lower tax bracket. 
And, and so that's one thing that we've done and it, it has been helpful. Um, but then you can also do a 1031 exchange. And so basically what that means is you can take a property that, that you have and that you have held for a little while, you go ahead and you sell that property. And then rather than having the proceeds come to your account, and then you go out and you buy another property with it, what you can do is you can actually have that money go into a, a third party's account. So it never touches your account. And it just goes there to wait until you bring it into your next deal. Now you do have certain time frames that you have to, to complete certain tasks in, in order to be able to use this strategy. But if you have a good deal flow, then I would say this is a fantastic strategy. And the reason that it's so great is because, and you can see this, there's different like calculators and stuff online where you can go and you can see if I get it and I bring it back to me and I have to pay taxes on it. And then I take what's left over and I invest it again. And then I sell it and bring it back to me. And then I have to pay taxes again. You can see if you can delay the tax, then, and you can put a larger amount into a deal, you're able to grow your money so much quicker if you can delay the tax until later on. And so it's a great, great strategy. We've done the 1031 exchange a couple of times. And I think as we move forward here in the future, we're going to be doing kind of a model where we buy six every year and we sell six every year. So you buy six, you put them in the lease option strategy for maybe three or four years. And then after three or four years, you sell those same six that you bought three or four years ago, and you do 1031 exchanges with each of them into new deals. And then as you do that, you get these new deals. And, and especially if you can find deals under market value, that's really where you gain a lot of your wealth and real estate investing is that you can buy deals where you buy the deal, you go in, you fix it up, you force, you force equity and appreciation. When you can do that, then it's like, wow, my net worth went up after buying this deal by $60,000. Then I wait a few more years and now I've created some more debt pay down. I've also gained some equity in it. And now the $60,000 gain is now a $100,000 gain. I go ahead and I sell that. And then I go into another deal that I can buy under market value. And then I fix it up a little bit. And then I go ahead and I refinance that. And when I refinance it, I can get a lot of that money out. A lot of that $100,000 I can get out of the deal. And then what's great about that is now I'm able to live off of that money and I don't have to pay taxes when I take a loan out. I don't have to pay taxes on that. So that's going to be a great way to continue to trade up and trade up and trade up until, you know, forever. So anyway, that's just an idea, but that's the plan that we have, you know, having enough properties to create your passive income and then having this strategy just kind of help create quite a bit of, of income for you as well. So you can take that income and do the things that you want with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've been in the lease option game for a while now, and I'm curious how that that strategy has changed, if at all, with the changing market. We had huge appreciation in real estate generally throughout the coronavirus pandemic with all the money printing and cheap money and all, and all of that. Now we're on the back end of that, rates going up. How have things changed in, in lease options since before COVID, through COVID, and now, you know, we're, we're past it with higher rates and everything. You know, that is a, a great question. And for us, they have changed quite a bit. So we've become more savvy with lease, with the option to buy properties. And so rather than what we used to do is this, let me kind of give you some numbers and explain it. Okay. 
let's say we buy a house for, and this is, you know, a few years ago where the houses were cheaper. Let's say we bought a house for 150,000. It needed 25,000 or 30,000 to get it fixed up. And then it was going to be worth 250,000. Okay. Let's say that those were the numbers and we could go and we could refinance that house and we'd get the majority of our money back out of, of that house. Right. And talking about your, your podcast being, you know, focused on passive income. A lot of times what we would do is if we could get a loan on that property for like 70 or 75%, then we would bring somebody in in second position on the back end after we refinance that property. And then as we would bring them in in second position, you would leverage the property up to maybe 80%. But when we did that, we would be able to suck out the majority, if not all of our own money left into the deal. We give somebody who brought in maybe 10, 15, $20,000, we give them a return on their money. They were making like eight, nine or 10% on their money. And they were happy because it was very passive for them. There was still 20% left of equity in the deal. We were happy. Our cash flow went down a little bit, but we were able to create this this increase in net worth. And we got this property that we now control and we didn't have any of our own money into the deal. So we that is what really helped us scale our business is these second position notes on the back end of a lot of these properties that we did. So that worked out really, really well. But going back to answer your question about how the lease options have changed over time. So we, we bought the property to 150, put about 30 into it. Then we refi- and then it was worth 250. We'd refinance it, get all of our money out, right? But when we would sell that property to a tenant buyer, we wouldn't sell it to them at 250. We would sell it to them at like 269.9, right? We would increase it because then it's three years to exercise the option. We were thinking, all right, so take the 250, you know, times it by 10 is, you know, 25,000, right? And so we would add about 20 to to 25,000 onto that deal. So if we sold it for 269.9, we were thinking, hey, this is pretty good. You know, you build in your average increase in, in appreciation. And then, you know, they go to buy it. It's great. So you didn't have to pay the realtor fees. You didn't have to pay a lot of the title fees because the tenant buyer is going to pay all of those. You got $20,000 more. And so, you know, your gain on that is an extra 40,000. So that's, that's fantastic. You know what I mean? However, this is the problem. 2021 and 2022, when that property no longer was, you know, we bought it at, and it valued at 250. It didn't just go up to 270. It went up to 370. You know what I mean? Within a two-year period of time, a lot of our properties increased in value by 50%. So it was crazy. They would increase like 25% one year, 20% the next year. It was just crazy in inflation and appreciation, which really is inflation in houses. But what happened was people were able to exercise their options and they were able to buy houses for like $100,000 below market value. And we were happy that we were helping them get into houses. But when we would see, man, we're selling these properties for $100,000 below market value. And then we saw all of the, the printing of money. Like, I don't know if I like this because who's to say that, you know, we don't become like Venezuela where our money becomes, you know, (laughs) worth way, way less. And now we're selling these properties for pennies of of what they're worth. And so we switched our model. We switched our model. And I was talking, I was in a mastermind group, uh, a big mastermind group called the Avengers. Fantastic group. I learned a ton from there. Got a lot of wonderful connections. But I was in that group and I was talking with Chris Crone, who's big on YouTube, has about a million followers on YouTube and does a lot of education and things like that. And 
he was in that group and I just had like a two minute conversation with him. And that two minute conversation has made me hundreds of thousands of dollars because he said, and, and he does a lot of, he's done a lot of lease auctions and teaches different strategies, but he said, you don't want to fix the, the amount when they go to exercise the auction, because if you do that, then if there's crazy appreciation, you miss out on all of that. So he said, what you do is have it be a certain amount or what it appraises for when they go to exercise it, whichever's higher. That small little idea has made us hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so, so what we'll do now is going back to that same scenario, buy it at 100, put 30 into it, it's our 250. And we used to go ahead and just put the option at two, let's say 270, right? But rather than that, what we say is you can buy it within the next three years at 270 or what it appraises for when you go to buy it, whichever is higher. And we'll have a couple of appraisals done so that we can take an average between, you know, the two or three appraisals, and then they can buy it for whatever it appraises for at that time. What that does is it makes it so that if the dollar devalues a lot, we don't miss out on a ton of appreciation that's created. And it also creates some motivation for the tenant buyer to buy it more quickly so that they can get in it before it, you know, if inflation starts to go higher and higher. Does that make sense? And so yeah. that's a new... That's, that's how we've switched it out. Okay. So we switch it to where we have the, the floating lease option. Then we also have something that's called the declining lease option. And so the declining lease option is a little bit different. Basically, given the same numbers, same scenario, let's say that we have somebody that comes in and they say, hey, look, I have a really big down payment. Can I come in with a big down payment and you know just kind of buy it from you and you, you carry the loan? So there's a lot of things called seller carry where I can sell a house, but I carry the note. And if I don't have a mortgage on the property, I'm able to create the mortgage. I now have the mortgage. I'm like the bank. They pay me. That's great. If I have a mortgage, I can also do something called a wrap. And, and sometimes it's hard to find banks that are willing to let allow you to do a wrap, but there's an underlying mortgage. You create a mortgage around that mortgage that's for a greater amount or a higher interest rate. So that payment is higher than the payment that you pay the bank. And it's called a wrap mortgage. But what happens with that is if they stop paying, I still am paying on my underlying mortgage. Now I have to foreclose on them because the, the title transferred to them. I have to foreclose on them. And then I have to evict them. And then I have to repair the property, most likely. If there's somebody who isn't willing to pay, they're probably not willing to take care of the property. Then I have to fix up the property. And it just takes a lot longer for me to get somebody else in there. So now what we do is called a declining lease option, where if somebody comes in in this situation and they bring in like $50,000, then what we'll do is we'll take the 270, we minus 50, so now it's at 220, and we say to them, you can buy the property anytime within the next three years, and the first year you can buy it for 220, the next year you can buy it for 216, the next year you can buy it for 212, and then that last year you can buy it for 208, right? So as if it were a mortgage, what we're doing is we're just declining that option strike price in a few times, but we retain ownership of the property. It isn't a mortgage, so we don't have to worry as much about Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loans. We're just declining the amount. It isn't that there's a certain amount that goes towards the, the pay down every month. Otherwise, it would look like a mortgage, right? They give you a down payment and then every month they have a certain amount going towards it. It isn't that. It's just it's a declining lease option. This year you can pay this, this year you pay this, this year you pay that. If you don't exercise it within that time frame, then the property 
outcomes, you know, you, you lose your right to exercise the option. We retain the rights to the property. We can give you a non-renewal and you move out and you move on with your life, right? But I would say everybody that's given us a large option fee has exercised their option. Mm, okay, interesting. So yeah, most, most people would say that with the lease to buy you know, program, about 15% of people will actually own the home. They actually exercise the, the option on the home. I would say that our numbers are probably twice that. I would say about 30% of people will actually exercise their option with us. And most of it's because we'll, we'll help them learn what they need to do. And like, I have a story of a lady in North Carolina real quick. And she, she was, you know, great lady, lady. She worked really hard. She was a, a teen mom and she, you know, got a job and really started working hard, trying to put her life together in a good way. And, and she paid a whole bunch of money in rent throughout the years. And she got to a place where we talked about the lease with the option to buy you know, program and she was excited about that. So she comes in with an option fee of that maybe I think it was $4,000. And as we're leaving, cause we were actually just in town and we talked with her, we got to meet her, but she said, well, well, how do I do it? How do I buy the house? I said in passing and didn't think much more about it. I said, we'll just go to a bank, talk to a loan officer, tell them that you want to buy the house, ask them what you need to do in order to prepare yourself to buy the house and then just do that. And so she's like, okay. She calls us a year later and she's like, okay, I'm ready to buy the house. I'm like, oh, really? Well, fantastic. Okay, well, what'd you do? Well, I just did what you said. I, I went to the bank, <laughs> talked to the loan officer and said, what do I need to do to buy this house? He told me I did it and now they're ready to give me a loan. And so it was awesome. She was really happy. She bought it right around Christmas time. She was super happy to get to the house. And now she owns her own home and she has equity in there. And, and she just, it was just a great, great experience being able to help somebody be able to get to a home. And we've done that with, with dozens of people. So it's been, been great. It really has. So I think that that is, if I can be honest, that is a concern of mine of the lease option industry generally is it, it's, it's a matter of the alignment of the incentives and, and whether the, the property owner, the investor is going to like kind of make the most ethical decision, if you will, or, or really try to help the, the tenant buyer actually close on the property rather than just try to keep their initial down, down payment or deposit or whatever, especially if it's say $50,000 like before and, you know, try to, for want of a better term, screw them out of the contract as opposed to give them that for us relatively basic education, but that something not everybody knows that, hey, just go talk to a loan officer. He'll tell you what to do. Take those steps. So how do you think about making sure those those incentives are aligned so that, you know, it's 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 creating a win-win situation, not just for you, but also for the buyer? Right. So that's a great question. And it's really important that you operate ethically. And there's some people that, that don't operate ethically. And Every business is the reality. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've met them. And as soon as I know of them, then I will let everybody know not to work <laughs> with them because I don't want them to be in the industry that I'm in. And, you know, I head up a group of about 700 investors in Arizona. I have a, a monthly meetup group and so if anybody has done something that's been unethical, I'll let everybody know that I know, hey, don't do business with them. This is the story. And because I don't want them to, to be in the industry that I'm in. So that's one thing. Don't do things that are unethical. You, you need to set up yourself to where it's like, okay, I'm creating an agreement. I'm going to keep my agreement if they keep their agreement. That's just important. That's just being a person of your word. I had some people that haven't read the agreement correctly and they didn't do what needed to be done. And they weren't able to exercise the option. 
And so they, they reached out to me and said, okay, we're ready to exercise the option. I'm like, well, I didn't think that you were going to exercise the option. Well, why not? Because you didn't do the things that you needed to do in the option agreement in order to exercise it. And then they're like, oh, so make sure that you read your agreement. Again, we, we have uh, about twice as many people exercise their option that, that work with us. And so we, we help people be able to, to own the home, but at the same time, read your agreement and do the things that you need to do in the agreement. And I mean, you'd think about it if, if I'm able to buy a house under market value, like some of the ones that we did where before we started doing the floating lease option, I'm able to get into a house with $100,000 in equity. Do you think that you would read that agreement and find out, okay, how do I exercise this house or exercise this option? And everybody that, that, that followed through with what it showed in the agreement, we made it so that they bought the house, everybody. But when they don't, it's very hard for me to be motivated when you haven't done your job for me to go out of my way to do more than, than what's my part to help you get another $100,000 when you haven't done your portion. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, glad we uh, dove into that today. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com, scroll down to the Stessa logo, and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Charlo, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Ready. Fantastic. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Good questions. And best is so subjective. You know what I mean? I can say the best being, you know, the highest return. You know, we had a, a manufactured home that we bought on land out of a place called Apache Junction, Arizona. And this place, and I'm not sure which state you're in. Where are you at? I'm in Virginia. Oh, are you? Okay. So we bought a uh, property out in Arizona in a place called Apache Junction, which isn't known to be a fantastic place, but over the years it's improved and it was on land and we were able to, we saw it come up on the MLS and the, they were selling it for 170. And so we called the seller's realtor and we said, Hey, we're interested in this deal. Actually, they were selling for 160. We called them. We said, we're interested in this deal. We would like you to represent us. What should we come in as an author. And he said, well, I think if you come in at 170, you probably have a pretty good chance of getting. Okay, great. We want to come in at 170. Now this property had two parcels connected to it. One had a manufactured home on it. The other one had two dilapidated houses. During the inspection period, we had somebody go and take a look at the dilapidated houses and it looked like the plumbing was bad and that it would need to be redone. So what we did is we came back to the seller's realtor and said, hey, we want a, a repair credit for these, for the plumbing. And so basically it made it so our offer was 160. Okay. We closed on it. We separated the parcels. We put the, one of the dilapidated houses on the MLS for sale. And, um, we sold it within a very short period of time for 95,000. So we were able to get 
the, the acre and quarter with the manufactured home for basically $65,000. We put about $15,000 into it. And then we sold it on a lease auction for like one ninety. We had somebody come in. They lived in there for a little while, but then they decided we want to go up north to get more land. So they then left. We got the house back, right? We went in, did a little bit more fixes to it and things like that. We brought in another person and they were there for a couple of years, about two years. Then they called us and they said, you know what? This is more on the upskirts than I want to be. I want to be more in, in town. And so we said, well, thanks for being a great renter. And then they moved out. And then we just put it on the market and then we sold it for $300,000. Wow. So that one was great because we were able to sell it three times. We got some options each time and we bought it for such a low amount because we were able to divide the lot, sell half of it and keep that one. So that was probably one of our, our better deals as a single family. We also did a good deal with a, a 12 unit where we made about 500,000 on that. But I would say that would be the best that it has to do with, you know, the best return. I would personally say that our best are the ones that we have out in Costa Rica because I love them the best. So we have some short-term rentals that we have out in Costa Rica. They're large short-term rentals. One's up on the mountains on two and a half acres. It has a maid house, a guest house, a tiny house, and a groundskeeper's quarters. And I love to go and, and visit there. I run some investor retreats out of it. And it is just an amazing, beautiful, beautiful place. And then we have a, another one that's out on the beach out in Costa Rica. Again, that one's large. They each sleep about 24 people. And so I, I enjoy them the most. So I would say that they're my best. They're not my best money makers, but they're definitely, I would say my best properties. Awesome. Awesome. Well, interesting examples. So we had the best investments. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So there was this property down in Casa Grande and the property was over a hundred years old and it looked really cool. It was like built out of rock, right? It looked like an old, like El Paso, the Alamo kind of, I don't know if that was in El Paso or Arizona. Like imagine the Alamo. That's what it looked like. It looked like this old church that had a sheet out or something. And so we went in there and we thought, hey, we can make this into a restaurant. By the way, we are restaurant owners and we have no idea how the restaurant industry would go. But it looked really cool from the front. So we buy it because we got it for a really, really cheap deal, like $90-something thousand dollars, right? So we buy it. We go in there and we're going to have to do a ton of work to it. So we're kind of deciding, okay, how are we going to do this? We talked to some other restaurant owners and they didn't want it. And so I'm like, oh crap, now what are we going to do? Let's see if we can turn it into an Airbnb. So we have these ideas. And then some people broke into it and they started using drugs and then they caught the place on fire. Uh, but this was after, after we had an insurance adjuster come in he took a look at the property and said, hey, you don't have some of these windows boarded up and there's some graffiti. So we're going to go ahead and cancel your, your insurance. So they canceled our insurance. A week later, they went in and they burnt it down. Now, remember, it was built out of rock. So they only burnt down the, the wood that was like on the floor and on the roofs. So we go in there we're like, okay, well, what are we going to do? And so we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. And then some other people go in and they burn it down again. <laughs> so this was the, the twice baked house, right? So we're like, oh crap, what are we going to do? And so we're trying to figure it out. But we also bought it like in 2000, 
I think it was in 2000. And so those are the years where there was so much appreciation. So we ended up selling this twice burnt down house for like $75,000. So we really only lost like 15,000 plus some of the carrying costs over a, a, you know, a year period of time. So probably lost about 20 to 25,000 on this house. So if ever you have a property that burns down twice and you don't have insurance on it and you can only lose, and you only lose $25,000 on it, I think that's a win. So I would say that that was our worst property and we bought it because it looked cool but we didn't have a really good strategy with it. So be careful of just buying something because it looks cool at the time. Need to, it has everything to do with the numbers. Make sure you have a very, very solid exit strategy and make sure you know your numbers really well. Don't just buy something because it looks cool. Wow. Well, that is a, a rough story, but a great lesson. That brings us to my favorite question here at the end of the show. What is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Oh, <sighs> I think it goes back down to what we talked about earlier about um, being ethical. Uh, if you want to be successful in, in real estate, in business, make sure that what you do and, and all the things that you do can be seen by others and not have them feel ashamed by it. Make sure that you know the people that you care about can look over what you're doing and still respect you. You know what I mean? It's so important to be able to have ethics as you invest, that you invest, you know, the right way, but it's important because if you don't, it's going to get known. Like, as I mentioned to you, I, I let everybody know when I work with somebody and, and they didn't do ethical things because I don't want to do business with them. So like, for instance, everybody that's ever lent me money on any of the deals that I've done, they've always got their money back plus the interest that was promised. And it's important to me that they always get back what they, what they put in plus what was promised. I lent somebody who was a buddy, you know, $25,000 because he was in a deal and it was a short time frame. He calls me up. It was something that I respected. And so I went to the 25 and, you know, this was right before pre-pandemic where everything just kind of shut down. Anyway, he, his business really got shut down and he was really hurting for money. But, you know, eventually he paid me back, but he paid me back to 25,000 and really he owed me about 30 something thousand because of the two years in which he had my money. I was grateful that I got my original money back, but man, it was, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to lend to him again because he didn't follow through with, with his agreement. And so it's important that you follow through with what you say you're going to do. I would say that that's the thing that I learned, follow through with what you say you're going to do. Absolutely. Well, Shiloh, thank you so much for joining us today. If folks want to find you on the internet, if they want to track you down, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they find you? Sure. They can go to meetshiloh.com. That's M-E-E-T-S-H-I-L-O-H.com. And you can see my YouTube channel on there. You can learn about the investor retreats that I run out of my properties in Costa Rica, um, my LinkedIn, you know, all of the things that uh, that I do are just on that that business card that you can go and, and learn about how to connect with me. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. 
Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.